Welcome to How We Win, the official podcast of The Persistence. Action is the best antidote for anxiety, and we're giving you the tools to make a difference right now. Today, we talk about the Biden administration's commitment to protecting our communities from guns. It couldn't come at a more critical moment. That's right. And joining us for our interview is the host of The Rick Smith Show. You guessed it, Rick Smith. So much union organizing happening right now. He breaks down what's happening around the country and the lessons we can take from it all. All of that, plus our reasons for hope. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Mariah Craven. And And this this is is How We Win. Really interesting to catch up with Rick Smith, who is Mm -hmm. a... Uh, one of the leading voices in labor. He really follows everything to do with unions and uh, and he yeah. has his syndicated radio show. We've had so many incredible uh, you know, union stories uh, right. of late and there's more happening. We had the Amazon workers who uh, voted to unionize in Staten Island that we talked about last right. week. And uh, also now more Starbucks stores are voting to unionize. Right. So uh, I'm excited for everyone to hear um, his perspective and, and his just depth of knowledge uh, on the history of unions and, and everything to do with it. Yeah, there's a lot to keep up with, and I'm so glad that that he took the time to to chat with you. Now we all get to learn what's going on because you hear bits and pieces. And so that's what I love about about this podcast is you can kind of Take take the time to do a little bit of a deep dive in with these incredible experts that we have. So, and it's important. It's important too for for how we're organizing and working together. I mean, we need to bring our collective organizing chops together, and and in a big way, we have a lot to overcome for the midterms. And so, uh, we we need all of us who are sometimes siloed, sometimes working together right. to uh, to really, you know, find that solidarity and come together if we're going to win in the midterms. I loved knocking on doors when um, on the weekends that um, the unions would mobilize a lot of times on campaigns or coordinated campaigns. You are walking alongside union brothers and sisters, and they always bring so much incredible energy. They they know each other. They're used to doing this. So they kind of bring a a different energy to like field activities. And, you you know, everybody's wearing their T-shirts and getting out together. And it just makes it that much more fun. And man, are they powerhouses when it comes to door knocking and phone banking. Yeah. I I actually talked about that with Rick too, because I have the mm-hmm. same thing, the most inspiring, uh, energizing like canvases yeah. and voter contact events I've done have been in partnership with uh, labor. So, Yeah. Well, can't wait to hear about that. Um, but before we get to it, a couple of, you know, big, important um, stories we wanted to to hit on. I was saying a few minutes ago that the first thing that we're going to talk about, it it was my reason for hope. And, and then it became crystal clear on this day that we're recording on Tuesday, why this is so important. But um, this week, President Biden announced new federal gun safety measures, uh, most significantly a crackdown on the selling and use of ghost guns. So people can buy these basically build your own 
gun kits, you yeah. don't need a background to background check to get them. Um, they don't come with serial numbers. They're untraceable. So anyone can buy one and, and put it together. Um, thou, there are tens of thousands of them on the streets right now. Um, it will soon be a federal crime to, to use one of these guns. Uh, this is this is huge and very important. And you know, the day after this big ceremony around gun safety issues, there's a mass shooting in New York City. Yeah. And Steve, it's the 15th mass shooting in the US since April 3rd, which was when six people were killed in Sacramento. Um, there have been, it's just less than two weeks ago, 15 mass shootings. Yeah. It's it's incredible to think about. And, and like how many of those I had no idea how many of those have you heard about? Like this is just a way of life now. It's it's terrible. You know, I was struck hearing Jackson a little bit in the in the background uh, while you were talking about these shootings that are going on and um you know my god, we have to do a better job at protecting our children. But thankfully I mean, this is a reason for hope, and this is great news that we have a president that um, is doing, you know, at least this, these common sense gun safety measures. Um, so uh, I'm I'm very grateful for it, and uh, you know. I mean, you know, probably know how I feel about guns. Uh, I, don't, I don't feel like any uh, regular citizen needs to have a gun um, or is capable of handling one responsibly. I, I think that there are people who can own guns, many own guns responsibly. Um, I'll tell you, I'm on next door in my neighborhood. Mm. There is an alarming number of people who have guns stolen out of their cars here. And they'll oh, get on next door and say, oh, my car was broken into last night. I had an unsecured handgun in the car. And now, so now we know that there's somebody in the neighborhood that has their hands on a gun that does not belong to them. And it really um, is unnerving. So, you know, I don't, I don't think we're going to get rid of guns in this country. Um no, it's, but it, we need, yeah. but we need, we need limit limits, common sense limitations, better education. We need to require people to lock up their guns when they are not using them. And there's so much technology out there that that our, our government could mandate gun manufacturers use to make them safer. Mm -hmm. um, so this is why, you know, when we when we take the House, the Senate and the White House, our work doesn't end. Um, our work continues uh, as we, you know, encourage the people that um, we voted into office to uh, take actions that work for our communities. Yeah. And and look, uh, the NRA is not what it used to be. It, it has uh, really mm -hmm. been diminished in some pretty significant ways. But they are they still remain a powerful uh, lobby for right wing politicians and um you know, I applaud all the efforts. I, I don't mean to sound like a, a downer on this issue. It's it's uh, um, it just seems 
like a no-brainer. And you know, the reason why it seems like that is because it's these common sense gun measures are popular with ninety percent of yes. Americans. <laughs> it's not them. just me. People want them, and uh, and it's not just Democrats either. Like Republicans who are gun owners uh, want you know, and responsible gun owners, as as you said, they are uh, supportive of this. It, it is a small group that. Um, that uses this as yet another wedge, culturally dividing issue at the expense of of our very lives. So thank you, President Biden, for doing this and and yeah. Democrats and everyone who uh, got us the trifecta right now with the, the House, the Senate and the White House. We've got to keep that up. we got more work to do. Absolutely. Other big news coming out of DC is it, it's 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 very interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, the January sixth commission says it has enough evidence to send a criminal referral to the Justice Department for Donald Trump and his involvement in what happened on January sixth. That's right, and and actually specifically, Liz Cheney uh, said that. Mm-hmm. Um, which is notable as one of the two Republicans on that committee. There is a lot of hand-wringing about whether or not they should do this um, and make the referral. The Justice Department has their ongoing investigation. We have been learning more in recent weeks about that investigation and and who they have been uh, looking at. Uh, And... uh, you know, the the Justice Department plays this very close and uh, they abhor leaks and they they want to definitely not seem partisan uh, or political in, in this endeavor. And I guess that's why a lot of Democrats are like, mm, maybe we shouldn't put this like added layer of political pressure on them by referring criminal charges for Trump. But I don't know how you feel about it, Mariah. If they if they really believe that they have evidence of criminal charges and enough to refer that to the Justice Department, then they should fucking do it. I mean, I guess they're playing it super safe. Listen, it's in the pages of the New York Times. It's on Twitter. Like the word is out. I'm sure Merrick Garland knows about this. <laughs> yeah, so he's I guess familiar. Saying... <laughs> he's familiar with the, what happened on January 6th. <laughs> so I guess maybe the idea is like they don't have to politicize things. The public now knows and uh, and they can, I guess, leave the Justice Department to do their work. Fingers crossed. Um, I, I think, you know, when all of this is over, a whole lot of interesting stuff's going to come out. I mean, Ivanka testified in front yeah. of the commission last week and I, it's, it was recorded and, you know, there's a chance down the road that we're going to see that stuff. And so, you know, I'm willing to be patient. I do, I do think it's a little silly that they're saying that, but they're not actually going to take action, but you know, you know, we'll get um, everything eventually. Well, uh, I I believe that um, the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. I I I do believe that, um, but like time could be running out. I don't want to say that because we because we're all about winning in the midterms, and I do believe we can win and uh, pick up some seats in the midterm. That is what we are all going to be doing. But God forbid we don't do that. And uh, um, McCarthy's already said first thing he's going to do if he was to be Speaker of the House 
is to shut this whole thing mm-hmm. down, to shut it all down, shut down the the stuff that implicates him and his buddies as well. So um, yeah, so there is a definitely a, a ticking clock on on this or on us to get out the vote. Preferably both. So. Both, both, yeah. Let's uh, let's talk about our hero of the week. All right, you picked this week's hero of the week, and you know there are going to be thousands of people out there who could not agree more with you. Yeah, um, we talk so much about the importance of countering right-wing disinformation. Um, and uh, and sometimes we're critical of the mainstream media and the narrative that they put out there. Uh, one of the greatest voices that has been working to uh, counter that was Eric Bollert, who tragically uh, mm-hmm. died last week in, in an accident, a cycling accident. I know that many of our listeners probably read his columns and have followed his work, follow him on Twitter. He's the um, publisher of Press Run, uh, which is a popular newsletter that has provided so much great context for uh, the news and why the media covers it in the way that it does. And um, uh, he was just a great, a great and, and really important voice in this space. And um, and so he's passed away uh, tragically and uh, and way too early at a time when we really needed him mm-hmm. uh, around to keep doing the work that he's doing. And our our love goes out to his family and friends. And uh, mm-hmm. and I just wanted to recognize him and and express gratitude for all of his great work. Thank you so much for doing that. And yes, let's all use him as an example and, and t- you know, take up the mantle and help do the work of, of fighting disinformation. So we, we talked about how important that was many times on this podcast and what we can all do. Um, so let's carry on Eric's legacy and, and, and keep at it. Let's talk about this week's to-do list. Okay, I am super excited about this. We have sort of a a pre-launch for a brand new fund that we are putting together, and uh, uh, we're doing it using our our the the great tools that exist at our besties swing left, um, mm-hmm. and we are creating uh, our own fund to donate to Swing Left's National Impact Fund. It's called guess what it's called. The How We Win Fund, of course. Hey, I like that. Yeah. And we're going to do it in partnership with a lot of other podcasts and partners, too. We're going to launch this in a larger way in coming weeks. So expect to hear more about that. But because you all are our How We Win listeners, we wanted to give you first crack at it. The Swing Left's National Impact Fund uh, goes to all of Swing Left's top races. 100% of the money goes to their top races. Um, We've kind of talked about these funds that they put together before. It's like a bundled fund that um, can change depending on where the need is the greatest. Uh, When races tighten up, candidates need more money. Uh, It it gets funneled there. It's really easy. One donation goes to all of these great uh, candidates. 
I was going to say needy. Great and needy candidates. <laughs> candidates, <laughs> candidates can be needy sometimes. Uh, go to swingleft.org slash fundraise slash how we win. We will have that link on our page. And uh, Mariah, important to raise money early, right? Absolutely. Early, what is it? Early money is like yeast. That's what Emily's list says. It makes yeah. everything rise. Um, it's not that early. We're, but yeah, but there's plenty of time and we want our listeners to be the founding donors of Ooh. the How We Win Fund and help uh, candidates in strategic races all around the country. So look at the show notes, get the link, make it whatever donation that, that you feel comfortable doing. It will be put to great use and greatly appreciated. Yes. Uh, Great. We love will be... the founding donor thing. That's, <laughs> that's wicked smart. You've raised money before, haven't I you? I was going to say, <laughs> it's almost like I've done this before. Um, uh, we'll ask a bunch more times. That's the other, that's the other <laughs> trick. Yeah. Ask often. Um, so I love this. I can't wait to make a donation myself while I do that. You folks listen to Steve's interview with Rick Smith, and then we'll be right back with our reasons for hope. He is the voice of labor and the host of The Rick Smith Show, where he has been fighting back against right-wing voices since 2005. His show is by working people, for working people, and there is no one better to talk to us about union organizing. Rick Smith, thank you so much for being here with us. Steve, good to see you again. I want to jump into all of the recent news about uh, Starbucks employees and Amazon employees. But um, first, before we started recording, we were talking about how damn busy you are. Like I, I do this show once a week. You're on all the time and uh, you also work a full time job. So you said you get about four to five hours of sleep a day. What what do you do? How do you spend your day? What's a day in the life of Rick Smith look like? Uh, well, we want to start in the morning or the night. Uh, nighttime, I usually <laughs> usually I'm in the studio about 630 uh, p.m. I do some a little bit of recording. Uh, I do a little bit of prep. Show goes on air at 9, 9 to 10.30 is when my show's live. 10.30, I run a recorded spot where I'm driving to work. I get to work at 11 o'clock. I work from 11 to sometimes between 7 and 9, depending on overtime. Uh, I get home 9.30-ish, wow. sleep from 10 to about maybe 2, 3, and then a couple hours with the kids, and then right back in the studio. And we do that uh, six days a week because um, we're on you know five nights a week from 9 to 11, uh, across the country on stations in Chicago, Minneapolis, um, you know, uh, Madison and Milwaukee and, you know, all, all places in between Harrisburg. Uh, and then the weekends, we do a Saturday uh, show uh, in New York City. Uh, Sundays, we're on in Los Angeles. Uh, so we're, we're, we're busy and there's so much more to do. That's why, you know, you, you can only, there's only so much time for sleep. There's so much work to do, so much excitement going on and so many opportunities. And this is where, you know, I, I, I can't turn down an opportunity, Steve, you know how it is. 
Uh, <laughs> this this moment comes around, but but once in a while, and you got to grab it and you got to move forward. And look, we're we're really in exciting times because the stuff I've been talking about for years. People are finally coming around to going, yeah, we do need to organize. Yes, we do need unions. Yes, we do need workers to be empowered in the workplace. And yes, the wealthy have been stealing from us for the last 50 years. And yeah. damn it, we're tired of it. And I think you're seeing that playing out. Yeah, absolutely. When we get so caught up in, um, and rightfully show, so right now, I'm super progressive. Uh, you know that. But when we have this left-right conversation all the time, it's really a top-bottom conversation absolutely. that we need to be having more. Um, so let's have it. Let, let's talk about um, Amazon. Last week, we were talking about this historic vote that Amazon workers in Stat Staten Island took to unionize. It was uh, a pretty unique grassroots effort because it came from people who were not seeing seasoned union organizers. Uh, what are your thoughts on how this went down? And does this create a new kind of blueprint for how workers can organize together in their communities? See, I take a different approach to this. This isn't new. This is rediscovering what built the labor, labor movement of the, of the 40s. This mm -hmm. is taking what was old and, and just polishing it up. Because this is how my grandparents' generation organized. Uh, they be, they were the people who came together in the workplace and demanded that the boss recognize them. These are the people who marched on the boss. You know, it was the 80s and 90s where we went to this business unionism idea that we're going to go to the unions and the unions are going to do for us what we used to do for ourselves. And unions wanted this. I remember when I first started in the labor movement, you know, the idea of, you know, unions are like car insurance. You know, you, hey, you, you may right. never need us, but you'll be grateful that you do if you ever get get into a problem. And I'm going, I don't know about that. Uh, I want to be empowered. I want to be active. I want to be engaged. And that's what these workers were talking about. So when the corporate shills were coming in, when the union busters, these high priced union busters were coming in and telling them all of the lies that they throw out, these people were going, no, Chris Balls isn't going to be driving a Lamborghini. I know Chris. Chris was in a meeting with me last week, and I know what he drives. I know what he wears. I know where he lives. I know him. You can't demonize him. And this yeah. is where that kind of grassroots organizing, that kind of, you know, we're all in this together kind of organizing is, is so important. And it got me thinking about some of the old... The, the historic victories. You think of the Bread and Roses strike from the, from you know, 1912. You know, they were mm -hmm. able to go across, to organize across multiple languages. I mean, you had women from multiple countries, from all these different languages, and they were able to come together and fight back against the same kind of oppressive corporate power that we have today. And I would argue even worse back then, these workers did what, what they were able to do in the old days. They talked to each other, they knew what their expectations were, and they fought back. And And I'm hoping the message is that, especially for the people who are, are leading the international unions, that it really, is a, it really is about the workers. It is about empowering them and giving them the tools to do for themselves instead of, hey, we're gonna come in and we're gonna do for you. For me, th that's that's a big part of the message. I think that's uh, very hopeful and inspiring. Um, and uh, of course, we're seeing workers in Starbucks uh, also unionizing. Just last week, six more stores in upstate New York voted to unionize, bringing the total unionized Starbucks to 16. Um, of course, we have corporations like 
Starbucks and uh, Amazon who are uh, going to try to squash that and fight back against that. So um, do you think this momentum is going to continue? What do you expect to see from Starbucks and uh, and other corporations in the future in response to this? Well, look, Starbucks, Amazon, any corporation, they're going to use every bit of power that they have because the pendulum really still has swung way to their side. They're going to use every opportunity to, to crush as much as they can. Look, um, you know, the Amazon victory in Staten Island was a substantial one. And, and look, I was one of the few people who said that I think they have a shot of winning all along. Because you, mm -hmm. I, I argue, and I've gotten a lot of pushback on this from people going, I've said New York has a union culture. Uh, they have union density of about 25%. So you, you know somebody who's a union member. And if you listen to the workers who, who voted yes and who have been organizing, they say the same thing. Hey, I, my, my this or that, my, my mother, my aunt, my brother. Hey, I know somebody who is a union member. They make good wages. They've got good benefits. They're treated well on the job. You know, they know somebody who having a union job made their lives better. So there is a union culture there. And that, that kind of helped them vote yes and, and say, yeah, I would like that. I would like to make that my life. I said, if any place that that was going to happen, New York was going to have that ability. Their mm -hmm. problem is, are they going to get a contract? I fear that the laws are in such a place that Amazon could, could close that place tomorrow and absorb it into all of the other ones. Because remember, that's JFK 8, which means there are other ones around there that they could probably do that with, as Walmart has done in the past when someone right. has, has voted for a union. They've shut entire stores down because the, the, the lube place voted to have six guys in a union. Um, will they? I don't know, given the fact that the NLRB has such a, uh, a strong general counsel and has a Democratic board. We'll see. I'm not sure what they're what they're doing. What I do know is Amazon is going to appeal this and they're going to yeah. appeal it vigorously. And if you've seen the story, they know they're not going to win. Their goal is to stretch this out, to play the delay game because they've got all the money. They know that they, if they can do this long enough, their turnover rate is high enough that down the road they can make them possibly desert or have another election or whatever. Their goal is to, to, to just stretch this and make it painful. They're, they're yeah. never going to want to sign a contract because their philosophy is we didn't lose until we're forced to sign a contract. So for them, this isn't a loss as much as it is a setback. But they're going to fight on the grounds of, you know, those 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 plucky little unionists. They were threatening people. And you go, no, they weren't. The people threatening people were, were you. Uh, the the $10,000 a day union busters you brought in to intimidate people at the captive audience meetings I would argue mm. that's that's the threat. And sidebar, uh, Jennifer Abruzzo at the, the general counsel of the NLRB last Friday uh, put out a memo saying that she wants to make captive audience meetings illegal. I love that. And it's about damn time. Uh, we need that more than anything. But uh, they're going to they're going to they're going to argue that the, the plucky little union threatened and intimidated people because those union thugs can't be trusted. Uh, they're arguing that by the NLRB doing its job down in Bessemer gave them a bad bad name and people voted against them because of that. They're going to argue because they fired somebody in the workplace and the NLRB has a charge before them that that gave them a bad name and that that hurt them. Uh, and, and a bunch of little things like that. Now, none of that's going to amount to them 
than being over to turn the election. But it is going to give them time to stall and delay. And Starbucks is going to try the same thing. They're going to try and make conditions as, as unbearable as possible so that other workers look at this and go, do we really want to put up with this? Do we really want to fight this hard just to not get a contract? Uh, the idea going forward is we're going to make this as painful as possible. We're going to mm. kick and scream and, and fight every bit of the way. And in the end, uh, maybe they don't get much. And the message for everybody else is, do you really want to put yourself through this? Now, for me, the argument is everybody looking at this. This is why we need massive, comprehensive labor law reform. This is why we need something right. better than the PRO Act. I know Democrats are saying, oh, hey, we need uh, we needed the Employee Free Choice Act. And look, Steve, I, you know, uh, I voted for President Obama twice. Uh, I, I shook his hand twice. Softest <laughs> hands of any man I've ever met. If I had hands like that, I'd never leave the house. <laughs> I shook uh, Shaq's hand once, and that was like uh, being in a in shaking a baby's bottom. It was so soft. It was. <laughs> there you go. See, so we're in the same bear. But he promised me, you know, back when he was candidate, twice we were going to get the Employee Free Choice Act and something better. Workers got nothing. Uh, I we're told right now we're going to get going to try and get the Pro Act. We're not getting that. Uh, we need voters. We need people who progressives. We need people to fight for major comprehensive labor law reform. We need mm -hmm. people who are going to fight for our government to once again stand up for workers and fight for workers' ability to, to collectively bargain. And the first step and the, the, the best thing for me is repeal Taft-Hartley. Go back to the original intent of the National Labor Relations Act, which gives employers not one single right. In the original NLRA, there isn't a word, there isn't a sentence, there isn't a paragraph that gives an employer any rights whatsoever. And that's because they understood employers had all the rights. Mm -hmm. That bill was about making workers on something of a level of, of an even playing field so that they could have the ability to fight for better wages, hours, and conditions. And we're in this moment where you know people are finally, I hope, finally waking up that for all these years, workers have been getting screwed, Steve, and you know this as well as anyone. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up um, kind of segues well into my next question about the relationships with Democrats and, um, you know, uh, labor and Democrats have always been great partners uh, historically. Um, but lately I've seen uh, tension with what you're talking about, too, Democrats not, you know, uh, passing stronger labor laws and also some tension between some Democrats and some unions when it comes to combating climate change, um, union whose, unions whose workers rely heavily on jobs by the fossil fuel industry, understandably are very protective of those jobs. Um, so what's your advice? How do we better work together um, as Democrats and labor uh, in all those regards, but especially with like building trades and the like to transition away from fossil fuels and, and support more green energy investments? Well, I'll start with the Democrats first. Um, look, I, I'm a registered Democrat, have been mo all of my, my political life. Uh, I, I am hard on Republicans. I, I, I beat them up constantly, but I am harder on Democrats because I believe that they should know better and they should do better. Uh, I think Democrats walked away from working people a long time ago, uh, but mm. yet they're still much better than the Republicans. Uh, and here's how. Uh, I don't think working people are at the center of what Democrats do anymore. I believe working people are the target of what Republicans want to want to 
take away and abuse in this country. That's the difference. They certainly want to exploit that feeling, too, from working people. Republicans do. Absolutely. And, and look, you know, you can go back to you know, the, the Clinton days. And, and I would argue, you know, the Carter days were OK. You know, there were opportunities to make advancements. But there was always this idea we need to be more business friendly. We always need to. Yeah, we're going to we're going to be on the side of workers, but we've got to help. We've got to be business friendly. And that always mm. comes at the the exclusion of some workers rights. Anytime we're we're going to raise the minimum wage, there's always got to be something that oh, well, we got to we got to give the pound of flesh to corporate interests. And that that kind of, you know, balances a little bit. And, and sometimes you go, oh, yeah, maybe we have to. That's gone in the Clinton era forward, I think, too far. I mean, you look at things like NAFTA. While Clinton was better than George H.W. Bush, he wasn't great. Uh, he could have been better. Now, I voted for him for one reason. He said he was going to sign strike replacement. That didn't happen. Can you explain what that is? Strike replacement was, you know, during that era, uh, what was going on because of the Reagan era, the firing of the PATCO workers, um, what the... the what corporate interests were is they decided that we're going to put people on strike. And if it's an economic strike, we can, if it's ruled an economic strike, we can replace them. And okay. then we're just going to replace them permanently. We'll bring in, we'll bring in new workers and well, you're out of luck. And as long as Got you it. stay out there, well, you're, you're on your own. And what this would have done is you said, no, you have to deal with these workers and they have, they're entitled to those jobs and you have to negotiate with them and bring them back when a contract is reached. Um, today, if you go on an economic strike where you say, no, this is about wages, um, the employer can go, screw you, you're out the door, down the road, bye, I'm bringing all, I'm bringing all scabs in and going to replace you. That's what can happen now, which is another reason why we haven't seen as many strikes as we've seen over the years, because the pendulum has swung way to the side of employers. We've actually seen more lockouts over the last couple of decades than we've seen major strikes because the power is now in the hands of the employers because they know ultimately they can just replace you and bring in scabs. So for me, that's why I voted for Bill Clinton. Uh, now, was he better than George H.W. Bush? Yeah, and after he did, he had some weak labor and some weak environmental policies that he threw in there. Uh, but that's harder to argue with with people that he was marginally better than H.W. Bush. He wasn't as good as Dick Gephardt, which is the guy that I would have wanted to vote for. But, you know, here we are in these moments where the things that labor wanted, they didn't get. So union density keeps going down. Wages keep stagnating and going backwards. And we keep losing jobs. We've lost millions of manufacturing jobs. In fact, you know, everyone from the right to the left and everywhere in between cites the fact that we've lost 70,000 manufacturing facilities of 500 or more employees. That's more than 3.5 million employees since, since NAFTA was signed. Those were good, high-paying manufacturing jobs, most of them union jobs, most of those community-supporting jobs, most of those, Steve, community-identifying jobs. Mm -hmm. You go through any of these small towns in Ohio or Pennsylvania or, or um, uh, Minnesota or you know, Wisconsin, that, that factory was the identity of the town. Now, you strip that away, and what do you have left? You've got drug problems, you've got poverty, and now you've got anger. And this is where we are right now. So, you know, people are holding on to what they got left. And yet you're talking about the building trades jobs. And, you know, West Virginia, all we've got left is coal. You know, back in 2013, we did a, a labor history tour where we went mm -hmm. through and we were talking about the Battle of Blair Mountain. 
And that's why I was there. Uh, and the person who was giving us the tour said, the trees are watching us, so be careful. We are literally in the middle of nowhere, Steve. Someone, it's like someone just dropped us in a forest. As soon as we got out of the RV and the van and we started talking, out of nowhere came 30 people with sidearms and big cowboy hats and all kinds of stuff with their big Friends of Coal belt buckles and their Friends of Coal uh -huh. t-shirts. There they were. What are you doing here? Why are you here? What are you doing? Why are you in our in our backyard? And I'm, I had to send my wife and kids scurrying away out of fear that we weren't going to make it out of there. Wow. And, and ultimately, what it came down to is these were people who worked in the coal industry. These were the workers who thought we were there to bash coal because, as the man told me, the guy with the biggest guy in the in the in the pack with the biggest gun, uh, he told me it's all we've got left. Because he even admitted when I walked up to him and I'm nose to nose with him, I go, you're going to stand up and fight for a coal company that's fucking you right now? Yeah. That's trying to steal your health care? That's stealing your pension? That's trying to put, that's filing bankruptcy to take this from you? He goes, it's all we got, man. It's all we've got left. And that mentality, Steve, is why the building trades fight so hard to hold on to what they've got. Because yeah. we've created this, this hunger games. We've given them no alternative. So they're going to hold on to this stuff as hard as they can because it's all their families have. Until so, we can give them a viable alternative, until we can say, you're going to be okay, and we can prove it because we've got 40 years of policy. We've got 40 years of horrible trade policy. We've got 40 years of trade adjustment assistance that says, hey, we'll give you a little unemployment. We'll give you a little community college degree where you can go get a job making half the money you used to make. And, and you'll, you'll, well, you're not going to be okay, but, you know, alcoholism, suicide, drug abuse, broken families, that's your future. Uh, but, hey, productivity went up, and we got a wealthier wealth class. That's what mm -hmm. we've learned. Until we can prove to people that, hey, we're going to do this better, Steve, and we're going to take care of the people at the bottom and the workers who are going to lose those jobs, and we're going to get them real retraining, and we're going to make their lives better, you're never going to get those folks on board. At least my thought. So, so what are your thoughts on those solutions? Because, you know, I, I would assume you agree with me that uh, we need to move away from fossil fuels. Um, you know, we, there's so many reasons we're seeing it uh, loud and clear right now just with the global uh, issues that it's, you know, our dependence on fossil fuels created and the tra tragedy that's happening in Ukraine right now. Um, and, uh, and the coal industry, uh, albeit if it's all they have is, uh, you know, on fumes uh, for lack of a better, uh, analogy. Um, so how do we effectively, what are some ideas that you have for effectively transitioning, uh, those jobs to some clean energy jobs? Is there a way to, to give them, uh, something else to transition to so that they don't feel like they're just having the rug pulled out from under them? That's, that's a perfect question. I mean, the reality is I like Jay Ensley. I, when he was running for president last time around, I liked Jay's plan. I liked his yeah. his his just green New Deal idea. I liked the fact that uh, he was talking about how we were going to move to and ha actually had some specifics on how we were going to move to a cleaner, greener economy. And at the front of it was talking about how do we we transition from the 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 pipeline jobs and the drilling jobs into the manufacturing, into the the installation, and making those the jobs that that well 
the next family sustaining jobs. Yeah. You know, everyone was talking about the Keystone Pipeline and everyone was crazy about the Nextel Pipeline. Would have done nothing to help us. Absolutely nothing. You know this as well as I do. Would do yeah. nothing. Was going to create a minimal number of jobs. Was going to do virtually nothing to help us. But it, again, it's this Hunger Games. They were some jobs. The people who lost those jobs, the people who would have worked on those jobs are highly skilled, highly skilled craftspeople. We yeah. can train them to do the things that we need them to do in the green economy. We can train them to, to put solar panels up. We can train them to build windmills. We can train them to do the next technology, the next technological marvels that we invent. This idea that we've got to drill a hole in the ground and, and then piss away all of this resource because, well, it's, it's what we've always done. Right. It's, it's ridiculous. It's ludicrous, Steve. I mean, this is the best we've got, 19th century technology? This is the best we are? This is the highest intellectual capacity we have? Come on. We're better than this. Yeah. Humanity if... has, has gotten a little bit further, I would hope. I don't know if you saw, um, boy, I hate to bring him up, but, you know, Trump was recently on a show. You know, they were asking him uh, how to get out of the quagmire uh, with Russia and Ukraine, and he went on a rant about windmills once again. So uh, if you um, listen to him, they... windmills cause cancer. Which I'm still trying to figure that one out. <laughs> yeah. Now, here's what I do know. I do know when I was a kid, acid rain, uh, that was a problem. Uh, mm -hmm. I do know a lot of the pollution that came out of the factories that caused kids, kids uh, asthma, like I was one of them. That was a mm -hmm. problem. I do know mm -hmm. some of the things uh, that we, the, the lead that was in the gasoline caused lots of problems. What I do know, smart policy when we really think about how are we going to come to solutions that solve problems and don't create new ones, when we do that, we make lives better. And when we do that, when we think about the working people, and this is the important part, this is the caveat to all of our, our policy problems. And it goes back to my eighth grade government teacher. Government decides who gets what. And right mm -hmm. now, government's been bought and paid for by the wealthiest people in this country, which is why who gets what ain't us. And which is yeah. why we've got to take our vote and we've got to be marching to the polls in lockstep and voting on working class issues and not on the polarized, I bought the, the blue hat or the red hat, but voting on who's going to fight for working class principles, who's going to make my life better, who's going to help my kitchen table put food on and a roof over my kid's head. For me, that's the answer here. When we start fighting on policy instead of uh, what what's going, who's marrying who three quarters of the way across the country. Um, I see that the only, yeah. that being the only way forwards, dude. Rick, you're a damn pro because you set me up right for my next question. You couldn't have segued it better. Um, when you talk about, uh, voting and getting together, uh, as, as a group to really make change for me, some of the most inspiring and the largest scale voter events that I've ever been to have always been in partnership with local unions. Um, and, uh, I guess my question for you around that is, do you think we're doing a good enough job right now of leveraging our collective power as Democrats, as grassroots organizations, um, community-based organizations, and unions to organize for these really important Democratic campaigns? And, you know, I mean, I'm talking about what we should be doing now and every day until the midterms, which no hyperbole, once again, are the most important election of our lives coming up. I, I fear we're not, and this is where you know I'm, I'm hoping I am. I'm hoping, but I fear, 
uh, folks on the left are, are too siloed. You know, I'm, I'm in my silo over here. You're in your silo mm -hmm. over there. And then we end up bombing each other because we're not pure enough uh, where we don't agree absolutely on everything. Uh, I'm right. of the mindset we got to pick some we got to pick some things that we agree on and we've got to find somewhere between the you know to use a truck driver term we got to find somewhere between the the lines uh, even if we're not perfectly down the center of the road we got to find somewhere on the road to where we can all be on it uh, instead of standing on the on the on the side on the on the on the sidewalks right. throwing things at each other we got to get <laughs> in the road and start start moving down it together. Um, I fear we're too divided, and I guess this is the answer. I fear we're too divided, and we're all working in our, our different causes. Uh, we're all a bunch of cause heads, and I could be blamed being the same thing. I'm a labor guy. For me, I believe the way forward is people joining and forming unions, coming together in the workplace, fighting for better wages, hours, conditions. Because uh, I believe economics uh, is what what's gonna could draw us together and what makes us equal. Uh, I believe, you know, you know, like Dr. King said, what good is it that you can sit at a lunch counter if you can't buy, if you can't afford to buy a hamburger? Mm. I believe that. I believe in union contracts uh, because my contract doesn't say if you're white, black, uh, male, female, gay, straight. It doesn't have any of that. It says the worker gets paid this. These are the benefits, and that's how people are treated. And that's the world that I want. Uh, we don't have to perfectly agree on what you do within the confines of your four walls, and you don't have to agree what I do. But in the grand scheme of things, I want us to have opportunity. I want us to be able to pursue life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Uh, I want us to lead our best lives, and I think that's where we need to be focusing, not on the on the on the on the micro uh, worrying about what this. This is what the right does so masterfully. They'll pick mm -hmm. one thing and they'll go, "This is what the liberals want. They want to do to your mm -hmm. children." And they right. scare the living shit out of people. I got yep. friends who are scared to death that, oh, my God, the libtards are coming to town and they're going to infect the children. And I go, but I'm a liberal. Well, yeah, but you're, you're a good one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you get that kind of stuff. I'm going, no, I want, I want, I want everybody to lead the lives that they're meant to lead. I want you to lead your best life. I want me to, I want everybody to lead their best lives. Yeah. Um, that's what this country is supposed to be about, right? And when you start, when you break down some of the, the, the vitriol, when you break down some of the outrage candy that the chaos merchants on the right love to shove down our throat, I think then we can maybe start having those conversations, but only till we get, we get back into the street together. Yeah. Did that absolutely. make sense? Or did it I just ramble, for, did I just ramble for three minutes? <laughs> no, you, you, you're passionate. You weren't rambling. And, uh, and it does make sense, it, the, especially the last part. We need to get back in the street together. I mean, uh, I, uh, I know a lot of our listeners, uh, our, all of our listeners in this show are, are engaged. They're volunteers. They're activists. They uh, understand the importance of this moment. And, uh, and they don't want to let the momentum that we have built on in recent years go away. But I do fear that um, for a lot of other people that has uh, waned and we need to keep inspiring people, keep getting out in the street, talking to people. Now that we can do it, hopefully, yeah. um, you know, we can canvas again and, and you know, uh, as the coronavirus has dipped, uh, at least for right now, <laughs> knock on wood, I hate saying any of that out loud. Um, so yes, that's what we need to do. Uh, one last question for you before I let you go, because we always finish with the same question on our show. What gives you the most hope for our future right now i'm looking at young people right now and this this we're not taking this shit anymore mentality i, I gotta I, I think back to when i was when i was young 
uh, I took a job and it was a, I, I got the shittiest jobs. You know, you're, you're the low man on the totem pole. You're going to get the worst job, the worst hours. You're getting, you're getting the bottom rung. But I was told, you know, you, hey, you pay your dues, like you were. You pay your dues, you take the crap. Uh, you're going to, eventually you're going to get a good, you're, you're going to make it to the top of whatever that heap is. You're mm -hmm. going to get a good wage. You're going to get good benefits. You're going to you're going to lead a good life. There's 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 something at the end of this this struggle that you're going to get. There was a payoff that that life was going to get better, and you knew that. Sadly, we've over these 45, 50 years, we've seen a massive redistribution of wealth from the working class of this country to the very wealthy. In fact, there's a Rand Corporation study out there, uh, and again, the Rand Corporation, not a bunch of hippie liberals. <laughs> uh, a very, you, know, uh, you can read it. Uh, they've they've shown how the wealthy have stolen, you know, uh, what was it, like a hundred bit trillion dollars in wealth from the working class of this country, and it's it's played out because wages have stagnated, productivity has continued to skyrocket, wages dead, and where did those productivity gains go? Not to the workers. It went to our our well to our top ten percent. Right. Time in fact, Mike again. Gibbons, if I can digress for a second, Mike Gibbons, the guy who's running for Senate over in Ohio, maybe you saw this. He went on a little screed the other day about how the rich people are paying all the taxes. You know, rich people <laughs> are paying too much tax. The middle class, they're not paying their fair share. And I'm going, that's because the middle class has been squeezed, Mike. Rich guy, read the room. Right. The middle class has been squeezed out of existence and you have all the freaking money. That's why you're paying all the all the taxes, because you took it all. And, and this is why young people I have such hope in. They get it. You know, they don't need the Economic Policy Institute to tell them that CEO pay uh, has gone up almost 1,000% since 1978, whereas worker pay has gone up 12%. They don't need that study. They saw their parents live through it. They see right. themselves living through it. They don't need study after study to show that the working class is getting screwed every time they turn around. They're living it. And they're saying, we've had enough. We're not putting up with it. We're not going to take the shit jobs at poverty wages in desperate conditions. You're not moving us back to the good old days of the Lochner era. We're not doing it. And they're fighting back. And they're organizing. And the Amazon victory, the Starbucks victories, and all across this country where you're, you're hearing these kids on social media saying, nope, not doing it. Uh, the great resignation or great reshuffle or whatever we're calling mm -hmm. it. 47 yeah. million people going, take this job and shove it. You know, that to me gives me great hope that people are waking up, that people are going to start getting back into the streets. Because I'll tell you, those 47 million people, if they were in labor unions, they wouldn't be quitting those jobs. They'd be striking to make them better. So my message to those people, right. don't quit. Stay and make it better. You want to make this country better? Make your little piece of it better. You want to change the world? Change that little corner of it. Unionize your workplace. And if everyone did that, you know what? We could make minimum wage better. We could make a living wage better. Dean Baker the other day said if minimum wage had kept up with productivity from the end of World War II till now, minimum wage would be 27 bucks an hour. And he's mm. not wrong. It's, it's 7.25 an hour. Where'd that other 20 bucks go? You know where it went? To Mike Gibbons yeah. and the other billionaires who have built us out of out of just the opportunity to feed our children, to put a roof over our head, to have retirement security. You know, I think back to my grandparents. My grandparents started off homeless. 
uh, when he got back from World War II. And because of his one single job, they were able to buy a house, lead a solid middle-class existence, raise three children, take vacations, buy cars, retire with dignity, die in their own home, and depend on no one. Hmm. They didn't lead extravagant lives. They didn't lead lives of the rich and famous, but they led dignified lives. That's what I want for every person. And we don't have that today. Sadly, what yeah. we've got is back to what I said at the beginning. We're in the Hunger Games, Steve. And, and the, the more we realize it, the harder it's going to get. And the more our politicians do nothing, the angrier we're going to get, uh, which is why I think we're in the position we're in. Well, yeah. And um, uh, the young people give me hope. And that's that's a very common answer to that question, too, because the work that they're doing organizing is inspiring. And you're right. We are in the hung Hunger Games. And if you've watched that actual series, then, you know, the older people uh, are the first to go. The young people, the ones yeah. who, now, do you who want carry to, us through. Do you want to ask the too. other side of that question? <laughs> do you want to ask the other side of what doesn't give me hope? Well, okay, we'll, we'll switch it up for you. We try to end on a hopeful note, but go ahead and make me sad, Rick. My generation doesn't give me hope. A bunch of old white guys <laughs> who keep trying to put those kids down. No, right. you don't know everything. Help yeah. those kids, help the, help educate them a little bit with the knowledge that you've screwed up and didn't, didn't act on and give them the tools to move forward and make this a better place for your grandkids. To me, that's the answer. Let's not Absolutely. hold. Let's not make the mistakes of past generations by holding the young back. Let's give them the tools. Let's give them the opportunity, and let's help them move this country forward. Steve, great job on the interview. Thank you. Uh, you're welcome. Tell us about your reason for hope this week. My reason for hope is. Uh, as we're approaching Earth Day, which is next week, and we really should be thinking about the Earth every single day, um, you and I had a chance to, uh, you know, a little teaser, we had a chance to talk to the hosts of the Climate Pod, and uh, we're excited for people to hear that, I believe will be next, next week's episode. But there was some interesting science that came out, um, very encouraging, that said solar energy can now be stored for up to 18 years. Um, wow. And, uh, and there's some technology that has made it possible to capture and store solar energy and then releasing it as heat when needed, um, connecting it to a thermoelectric generator. This really gave me hope to hear this. Um, we really have all the tools that we need to combat the, cl the climate crisis. It, it really is up to the political will of the people who hold the levers uh, in, in order for us to be able to do it. Um, this is really exciting. This is a, a huge step for solar energy. Um, to be able to store energy for 18 years like that is really meaningful. So that gives me a lot of hope. Um, that is absolutely mind-blowing and a great tease for the the awesome interview that we have we never tease um, we never tease our interviews <laughs> can so we could do it sound like a professional don't i um <laughs> it already happened so we know that no one's gonna cancel or reschedule or anything like that so um thanks for that uh my reason for hope is that this week is um, Black Maternal Health Week. Hmm. Um, in case you didn't know, Black 
women are three times more likely to die in childbirth than um, their peers. And so um, this is incredibly, it's an incredibly important issue that is often overlooked because of healthcare disparities, um, because of a tendency for medical experts to not listen to black women and their right. families. Right. Um, that that happens an alarming number of times. Vice President Kamala Harris is leading um, a big meeting, a cabinet level meeting, an effort this week around drawing attention to this issue. Um, and the Biden administration has dedicated $3 billion to helping fund programs targeting rural maternal health care, as well as implicit bias training for medical professionals. So um, incredibly important issue, often overlooked, and I'm really proud of the vice president for leading the way on this issue. I love that. And that's why representation matters, too, when you have people from diverse backgrounds uh, who are in power, then they uh, bring to the forefront issues that matter to their communities. And that's why we need uh, diverse representatives. And that's uh, very exciting to, to see our vice president leading the way on that. And thank you for bringing that to our attention, too. I was not aware that this was uh, Black Maternal Health Week. So now you know. Thanks to everyone for joining us today. This is how we win. We win when we all get involved. Send us an email at hello at howwewinpod.com or send us a tweet at bluesboysteve and at Mariah underscore Craven. While you're at it, be sure you subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple or wherever you get your pods. And don't forget, we have just launched our How We Win Fund. Go to swingleft.org slash fundraise slash how we win. And let's start raising money right now for the midterms, the most important election of our lives. We really appreciate you being here with us, and we'll be back with more next Wednesday. See you then. 